Well, good morning once again. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the Miller sisters are going to sing that song in heaven before Christ, and Jeff will be tickling the ivories. I told Bruce, he's just eye candy. <laughs> he's just eye candy. But uh, what, a, what a tremendous song, what a beautiful song to lead us into the text of Scripture this morning. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Well, we are in our 12th year as a church, and so each year towards the beginning of January, I always set aside uh, some time to reflect back on all that God has done in and through our church in the previous year. And it's really quite amazing to do that. It's reassuring that God continues to have his fingerprints all over our local church. I hope to share some of these many blessings at our church family update at the end of the month, but one stat in particular that really stuck out to me, other than the 14 babies that were born during the last year, was that we had six weddings in 2022, all couples from or within our church. Whenever I officiated a wedding, and I've had the privilege of leading a lot of weddings over the years, I always reflect back on our own wedding. Kathy and I met in June of 1986, and we were married in June of 1987. So we are in our 36th year of marriage, and she is God's greatest gift to me. She could tell you much better than I could, but as I recall, after I proposed to her and she accepted, we we had just about four months to plan for the wedding. And we had a couple of major hurdles to overcome because we were living five hours apart And the church that she was attending in the Chicago area was meeting in a school, and so they had no building for us to use for the wedding. And so I called a pastor friend of mine up in that area, and he and the church were very gracious, and they let us use their facility for our special day. After having a rehearsal and rehearsal dinner the night before, I believe the ceremony began at like three o'clock sharp on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. Everything was nicely decorated. There was a lot of joy and excitement in the room. And all in all, it was a pretty traditional wedding. Everything seemed to go according to plan. Kathy had five bridesmaids. I had five groomsmen. Both her pastor and my former youth pastor officiated the wedding. The whole ceremony lasted around an hour before we all went to the gymnasium for the reception. Then we had a nice buffet meal together. By 9 o'clock, The place had cleared out. We were off to our honeymoon destination. So it's pretty boilerplate, right? Pretty, Pretty typical of what we would expect at a traditional Christian wedding. Well, I mention all that because as we come to our passage for this morning, the setting is a wedding. And it's very important to know that what I just described about our wedding was not at all the way that weddings were done back in biblical times. And so with that little nugget of information in mind that's so foundational for our study today, and I'm going to explain more about all that in a moment, let's read the account of Jesus' first miracle, which was at a wedding in a place called Cana. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. 
his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them to fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tested the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Pretty cool story. It's the story of Jesus' first miracle. And I don't think there's any mistaking here that the scene and the setting for this this miracle was at this particular wedding. So I want to look through this passage together with you this morning by looking at five S words. So if you're going to take notes this morning, I'm going to give you five S words. And I think it's going to help us to fully grasp all that the Lord has for us in this passage. And, and there's more here than meets the eye. So the first S word, if you're taking notes, is the setting. The setting. Look again at verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so as best as we can piece together, a wedding in first century Palestine and the subsequent celebration could easily last a week, a solid week. Weddings in that day were huge, huge social events. And interestingly, it was the groom's parents who were on the hook for all the expenses, not the bride's family, which is the modern-day tradition. And so here's how it worked. Rather than an engagement period, the couple would enter into what was called a betrothal period. And this was considered the first stage of marriage and the the couple's commitment to one another. The betrothal period could only be broken through divorce. This period would generally last for several months. And although the couple uh, was committed to one another, they were not allowed to live together or consummate the marriage until after the official ceremony. Best we can tell, here's how things would progress. Uh, After the betrothal period had elapsed, there was an official ceremony. On the evening of the ceremony, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house, pick her up, take her back to the groom's house where the ceremony would be conducted. Now, as I said, the groom's parents would be on the hook for providing everything for the guests, including housing for those who needed it, and of course, meals. It was a big deal to be invited to a wedding, and because of that, there were all these expectations that were heaped on the groom's family. As I recall, I don't really remember, it's been so long ago, but I think we had around 200 people at our wedding, all gathered in a large auditorium. But weddings in biblical times were much more intimate. All of the festivities were in the groom's home. People would come and they would go throughout the week So think of all that it would take to manage this. 
Think about this. People coming and going for up to a week period of time, and the host would always have to be on the ready to accommodate the people who attend. It was a huge undertaking. When we first moved to Pennsylvania, I was pastoring a larger church, and Kathy and I wanted to get to know the people, so uh, we thought we would host an open house at our house. And so Kathy made food for hundreds of people, had it set out. We invited everybody who wanted to come. And I think that time was about four hours in length. It was exhausting. More for her than me, but it was exhausting. People coming and going and making sure that we had appropriate food for everybody and appropriate drink for everybody. It was exhausting. Four hours and we were, we were beat. We were wiped out. I can't even imagine what it would be like to do that for a solid week, 24 hours a day, serving as a host for people as they come and as they go, people staying in your home, people eating your food, people drinking your drink. We're not told here the names of those who were married, only that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so was Mary, by the way, who was the mother of Jesus. But it appears here, if you read the text, it appears that she may uh, also have had some sort of formal role in the proceedings. Just a side note here, in case you're wondering, uh, nowhere is Joseph's name mentioned here in this narrative. So it's thought that perhaps by this time he was deceased. I believe the last time Joseph's name was mentioned in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life was when they were all traveling to Jerusalem when Jesus was around 12 years of age. That account's in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50. And of special note, if you recall, Joseph's Joseph's name wasn't mentioned in the account of Jesus' crucifixion either. And so Joseph may have been dead for some time, but Mary is here, and Jesus is here, and his disciples are here. And one thing I think worth noting here is the relational side of Jesus. We studied a little bit about John the Baptist. We know he was the eccentric voice in the wilderness, right? But Jesus lived and ministered among the people. His whole three-year public ministry that we're launching into here, he interacted and he served real-life people. And if we stop and think about that for a moment, with Jesus as our example, shouldn't that be our, our pattern as well? As we begin to view Jesus' public ministry, we're reminded that the Christian life is about investing in the lives of people. We serve God by serving people. Do we understand that? This is how we serve God. I just want to serve God with my life, Pastor. I just want to serve God. Well, how do we serve God? God is in heaven, obviously, he is omnipresent, but he is spirit. He doesn't need our help. He's got it. How do we serve him? How do we serve God? We serve God by serving people. And we take our cues from Jesus. You know, he was speaking of servanthood In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you know the verse very well. The Son of Man did not come to the earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The King of glory, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has come to the earth. He condescended down to be among people, sinners. But he didn't come for people to adore him and elevate him, put him up on a pedestal or on a throne, but he came to serve. So in like manner, the Apostle Paul implored Christians to do the same. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later, the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, and let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We serve God by by serving people. I think all of us really should think about this and think about how we're serving God. We only get a certain length of time on this earth, right? It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so we all have an appointment with death. Some of us will live to be 75, 85, maybe 90 years of age, maybe more. I think I just saw a lady who was 119 years old. And she just recently celebrated her 120th birthday or something crazy like that. But that's a long time. But in light of history, it's a blip. It's a blip on the radar screen. You know, all of us that are Christians will stand before Christ at the Bema seat, the the judgment seat of Christ. We'll give an account for how we served him. Do we all grasp that and understand that? Jesus is in heaven in a glorified body. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's preparing this glorious place for us, all of his children to come and to be with him forever. He's going to return at any time. And then we're going to go and we're going to stand before him. The best we can tell, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, would be between the seven-year tribulation period. So it's going to be quick. When we get to heaven we will be in line to stand before Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And we will give an account to him as to how we lived our life for him, how we served him. I think our hearts are to serve God, right? And we do that in a lot of different ways. We serve him by serving our families. We serve him by serving our friends. We serve him by serving in the church. We serve him in a lot of different ways, but I think we need to think about it. I think we need to think about it. Jesus was accessible. And we're going to see that as we move through his public ministry. John the Baptist was sort of a weird guy that lived out in the wilderness. And he would come, and because he was something that no one had ever seen before, he would have this huge following, and he would preach, and people would come, and he would baptize people. But Jesus lived among the people. Jesus was relational. So think about this. The Son of God and the Son of Man is physically at this wedding celebration. It's amazing. You know, there's always talk in the community, right? Just imagine that after all the wedding festivities are over, the couple is in the marketplace getting food. They run into some folks that they know. The subject turns to the wedding. And who was there? 
Well, it's, it's interesting that you ask that, they may say, because the eternal creator God was there. His name's Jesus. You know Mary's son? He's God in the flesh. Perhaps you know him. And if you don't, I'd love to introduce you to him. Jesus is at this wedding. And so we transition from the setting to the situation, and we see that here in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So here we find one of the worst possible things that could happen during the middle of a week-long wedding celebration that has uh, come about, and it is that they have run out of things to drink. They ran out of wine. There's nothing for the guests to drink. Now, you've got to remember that drinking water back in those days, it really, it really wasn't an option because they had no good way of sanitizing the water. So wine was the staple drink of the day. And they'd use wine back in those days to even to sanitize the water to make it more potable. But running out of wine would be a huge deal. Huge deal. We can only imagine the embarrassment for the groom's family. Their planning could have been viewed by some as woefully inadequate or woefully insufficient. You invite us to come to the wedding and you don't even have anything to drink? How in the world could you not have enough wine? And so this is a huge crisis point. And Mary, who, like I said, probably had some sort of formal role as a server or as a caterer, is troubled enough by this situation that she goes to Jesus and she has to talk to him. Of course, Mary knows her son intimately. She knows he was the son of God. God in the flesh. She, she physically brought him into the world. She'd, imbu- she'd viewed his entire life. Not once did she ever see her son sin. And not to be missed here, I think, is Mary would have never approached Jesus if, it, Jesus if he was some sort of aloof guy or someone who wouldn't care about another person's need. No, Mary went to Jesus because she knew he was approachable and that he was the only one there that could do something about this tenuous situation. And so she pulls Jesus aside and she presents to him the problem. And what does Jesus say? He says, woman, and that's really just a formal word that he used that would be akin to the respectful use of the word ma'am. He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? Specifically, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So it seems like if we stop there, it seems like he's kind of brushing her off a little bit. He's, he's saying, no, it's not yet the time. By the way, the, the use of the word us by Jesus here indicates that his first disciples that we learned about last week, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, uh, were all there with him. The text begins on the third day. It's three days after the last encounter that we have in the text of Scripture. What Jesus is saying here, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's saying that while his public ministry has already begun to unfold, and we've seen that as we saw his baptism and and some of these other things that have occurred, he knows 
that when he performs his first miracle, the word's going to travel quick. So that is the setting and the situation. And now we have the statement. At the end of verse 5, Mary says to the servants, and this is perhaps her wait staff. We don't know the connection that she had, but somehow she's trying to intervene for the couple in this situation. And she says to the wait staff, whatever he says, do it. So maybe she had some authority. Maybe these were servers that she was in charge of. I I don't know, the text doesn't say, but it seems like she has more of a formal role here. And you wonder if Mary is not encouraging Jesus to just show your power to these people, Jesus. Just show them what you can do. She obviously knew he could easily remedy the situation, but she didn't want to put any undue pressure on him. And so in our mind's eyes, we imagine how all this goes down. She tells Jesus what has happened and then tells the wait staff to do exactly what he tells you to do, and then she walks away. Perhaps to console the groom's parents or to tend to other responsibilities, but she just trusts in Jesus. She couldn't personally do anything about the situation, so she goes to Jesus and she just leaves it there. If only we could learn from Mary here. She just went to her son and she left her concerns and her cares at his feet. I think sometimes, I know I fall into this category sometimes, I think we we, we like to be fixers. We want to be fixers rather than acknowledging our need for Jesus to fix this or for Jesus to fix that. We often don't even think of him. We charge along making our plans to try and fix things ourselves. How many times have we looked back in our life and seen the error of our ways? And we just like, ah, I should have left it in the hands of Jesus. Instead of turning to Jesus to fix things, I think a big part of this story is this reminder that we have no real power in and of ourselves to fix most things. All we can do and all we should do is turn to Jesus and give the situation to him and trust that he knows best. We already know this, right? We know this is what we, but we don't do it. Trust whatever he chooses to do is perfectly fine with us. We're reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. The Apostle Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples, who's at this wedding celebration, no doubt watching all this with a very careful eye, years and years later, years and years later, He implored the early church to learn the lesson that he witnessed here in this situation and many other situations in his life. And he said in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And if that hits you with conviction, please know that it hit me equally hard this week as I was pouring over this encounter. And it made me think of a situation in the gospel accounts in Mark chapter 4, and I want to take you there just real briefly here. So if you would, uh, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke, John, Mark chapter 4, if you would go there, please. Mark 4, in a story here, actually a parable, that I think is helpful for us to see. Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 26. Now, this is what is referred to as the parable of the seed, okay? It's about our inability to bring about the salvation of anyone. Many of us have people in our life who desperately need Jesus, and we can do nothing about it except be faithful in giving them the gospel, right? So Jesus uses a parable to illustrate that truth, and it's the story of a farmer who can plant his seed, but he has no ability to make it grow. So you see that here, Mark chapter 4, verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and then he goes to bed at night. And he gets up daily, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Now when the, when the crop permits, he immediately puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so what's the lesson? <laughs> what's the lesson there in that parable? Do all you can do, be faithful in giving the gospel every step of the way, and then leave it in the hands of Jesus. And so essentially what he's saying here is cast the seed and then go to sleep. Cast the seed and then go to sleep. Our daughter, who is pretty artistic, made this up for me for our bedroom. And here's what it says. Give it to God and then go to sleep. Think about it. Just, just, Give it to the Lord. Give it to, give it to Jesus and then go to sleep. And this, I think, is exactly what Mary has done. Leave it in the hands of Jesus. Trust in Him. Cast the seed and then go to sleep. Trust in Jesus to do only what He can do. By the way, this passage in Mark is another reminder of the sovereignty of God and salvation. We can't do anything to bring about the salvation of anyone. That's God's work. Paul says virtually the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, when he said, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one who caused the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. And in principle, that's exactly what Mary does here, right? She has no ability in and of herself to remedy this catastrophe. And so she brings it to Jesus, and then she walks away. Maybe she even took a nap. But she leaves it right where it belongs, right in the hands of Jesus, and so we've examined the setting, the situation, the statement, and now we want to take a look at the solution. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, draw some water out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So here we find some of the details that Jesus had to work with. Six huge water pots that held somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. So if you just did the math in your head, you realize that we're talking about somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of capacity in these six water pots. They're large water pots because it says here they were used for ceremonial cleansing, so there needed to be a lot of volume when they were filled with water. So this is fascinating. Jesus takes over the situation and he begins to, he begins to instruct the wait staff. He says, fill up the pots with water all the way to the top. And so they immediately obey, as Mary had told them to do. And then without delay or hesitation, he tells them to take some of this liquid to the head waiter. And so they do. The head waiter, the guy that's probably in charge of all this stuff, takes a sip. And what he thought was water, but then he quickly realizes that it's wine. And it's not just your average ordinary wine. It's really, really, really good wine. Perhaps the, better, the best he'd ever tasted. Now, let me just say, in case you've been taught something to the contrary, this is not grape juice. It's wine. Just like God created the trees and the plants and the animals and Adam and Eve with age, there is little doubt that this is aged wine. Now, I wouldn't personally know the difference between good wine and bad wine because I may be one of the only people you've ever met in your life who has never tasted wine But this is really, really good wine. The head waiter was an expert in these things. Probably this isn't his first rodeo. He's probably done a lot of these wedding ceremonies and celebrations. And so he knows what good wine is, and this is really, really good wine. So the head waiter is perplexed. I thought we ran out of wine. Now we have 180 gallons of wine? He calls over the groom, who along with his parents are ultimately responsible for providing the food and the wine for the wedding celebration, and he essentially says, usually folks put out the the good wine first, and then when the guests get a little tipsy, they bring out the cheap stuff because they wouldn't know or recognize the difference. That makes sense. We have no record of the response by the groom here, but he must have been in utter amazement. He no doubt knew, like everyone else, that the original supply of wine had run out, but now he sees all this new wine, over 100 gallons of it. He's got to be dumbfounded. Jesus had just performed his first miracle right in front of the eyes of the groom and everyone else who was in attendance. Talk about a a good wedding story (laughs) that the bride and the groom could tell their kids. By the way, Cana which is where Nathaniel was from, is not found on any of our modern-day maps. So no doubt the city was renamed, but it's thought that this area, Cana, was, was previously 
uh, somewhat close to Nazareth, the city where Jesus was, was from. And so we, we consider the setting, the situation, the statement, the solution. And now, ironically, we conclude with the start. The start. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was proof positive and the first of many signs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And notice here that this miracle fortified the belief of his disciples. This miracle is the kickstart to many, many more miracles to follow. Can you even imagine Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel within the last three or four days have become Jesus' disciples. They are with him at his side, following him. That's what a disciple is, a follower. They're right there. When they decided to follow Jesus, they had not yet seen a miracle by Jesus. Only the acknowledgement from John the Baptist that he is the Lamb of God, right? They hadn't seen anything yet with their eyes that would prove that he's the Lamb of God. And now... Right before their very eyes, they see that indeed their decision to follow after Jesus was right on target. Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel are all there to witness this first miracle. And as I said, those four men would stick with Jesus to the end all the way through his three-year ministry, through the ups and the downs, they were right by Jesus' side. They were followers of Jesus, true disciples of Jesus. They were with him to the end. They were all martyred for their faith because they knew that he was the Son of God. He was Messiah. They even gave their life for Jesus. So they're all there for Jesus' first miracle, but it's just the start. It's just the very beginning of the three-year public ministry of Jesus. It's just the start to their unbelievable journey as disciples of Jesus. We read a story like this, and we think, you know what? We're, we're on a journey with Jesus, right? You wonder how close by we're actually following him. These guys had known Jesus for four or five days, and they're right there. Some of us have known Christ as our Savior for decades. If someone were to examine our life, take a really close look. We let them in, we let them see who we are and what we do. Maybe we even let them into our mind, they see how we think. Would they say, wow, these guys are followers of Jesus. They stick right by his side. Wherever he goes, they follow him. So I finished the message right there. Two days later, I came back and I said, you know, there's just a few things here that I think are worth expounding upon. There's a number of components to this story that the Bible clearly addresses. So I don't want to miss it. First, then and now, 
It is God's design for the covenant of marriage to be between one man and one woman. That's God's design. Not two women, not two men, not one man and seven wives. One man and one woman. Second, it's obviously not a sin to drink wine or to abstain from drinking wine, but Scripture is replete that it is a sin to get drunk with wine. In fact, in Ephesians 5.18 that was read for us this morning, it says that we are to be filled with the Spirit, right? We're not to be drunk with wine. That's dissipation, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. So we see there that what what Peter is talking about is that we're not to be controlled by anything other than the Spirit of God in our life, right? We're not to be controlled by drugs or alcohol or, or any other thing. The Christian is to be controlled by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit as we live our lives for Him in this life. Third, Jesus is still in the business of doing miracles today. He's not on the earth, but He's superintending all that goes on in this life. The new birth is the greatest miracle there is. I mean, you, think, you sit back and you think about how God through Christ has saved you, undeserving as we are. I mean, we know ourselves, we know our thoughts, we know our actions, we know things that nobody else knows about us. All people know about us is what they viewed from us. But they don't know what's down deep inside, good or bad. They don't know. But He does. He knows. And He's still in the business of doing miracles today. We're all, all of us who have trusted in Christ, we're all examples of the miracles of Jesus today. The same Jesus that Mary called upon in her time of need is the same Jesus whom we can call upon in our time of need. You may be going through a bunch of stuff in your life right now. A lot of distractions, a lot of things that pop up, things that we don't expect sometimes. So we're going through stuff. We, we constantly are going through stuff. But, but can I encourage you today? Sometimes I think we have things that are so heavy that we can't carry them. And it's, it's sovereignly given to us because, providentially by God given to us, because I think we need to realize that there are some things we can't do anything about. Right? Just in the situation with the wedding at Cana, where Mary knew there was nothing that could be done. She couldn't do anything about it. Nobody there in attendance could do anything about it. And so she goes to the only one that can do anything about it. She goes to Jesus and she says, we're out of wine. We're out of wine. Think about the request. It's not like there was a giant store down the street where they can go and buy more wine. There's, it's not like there was a Walmart where you can pull up and, and uh, have placed your order ahead of time, pull up, and they'll bring it out to your car. There's no wine. She couldn't remedy the situation. 
So she turns to Jesus. And I think this is why we have the constant reminder that we can't do it by ourselves. We need Jesus. Some things, most things, are too heavy for us to carry. And so what do we find in Scripture to just give it to Jesus? (laughs) Just give it to God. And then go to sleep. He's in sovereign control of all things. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we have witnessed this unbelievable miracle that was performed by Your Son, the Lord Jesus, it's eye-opening for us. When no one else could do anything about anything, only Jesus could provide the wine. And He faithfully did so. Lord, we thank You for Your faithfulness in our lives. We are unworthy servants at best. At best. You have saved us from the penalty of our sin. And so may we desire to live our lives for You all the days of our lives. And we thank You for the reminders that we're just to give it to You and then go to sleep leaving it in your hands, the sovereign God of the universe. Thank you for loving us, for caring for us, for taking care of us, for being there to carry life's weight. We thank you for the intimacy that we have with you. And Lord, may we contemplate these things that we've considered today in your word and plug them into our lives so that we might be better followers of Jesus, better disciples of Jesus. We thank You and we praise You this morning. And it's in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who performed this mighty miracle at the wedding at Cana. Amen.